The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save and save and win. All right, folks, now back with me is one of my all-time favorite guests and really all-time favorite people for that matter, and that's Mr. Ben Wright. Every single time I say that, it's hard to believe that a legend like Mr. Wright is going to be with me. And like I said at the top of the show, 17 times now, because quite frankly, in my mind, He's the best broadcaster in the history of the game. His magnificent style made every tournament he did infinitely more compelling because of the way he painted the scenes for us. And as we enter what, like I say, what would have been Masters Week, who can forget the outstanding job he did doing those tournaments for decades? His phrase, that'll be evil music ringing in Nicholas's ear in 1975, set up broadcast partner Henley Longhurst moments later when he called the greatest putt that he's ever seen in his life when Nicholas hold that 40-footer on 16. And as I always like to remind everybody, it was Mr. Wright who used the phrase, yes, sir, to put an exclamation point on Jack Nicklaus's eagle putt on the 15th hole during the final round of the 1986 Masters. He used that phrase two holes and 20 minutes before Vern Lundquist used it when uh, Nicklaus made his birdie putt on 17. But Mr. Wright put his stamp all over the history of golf and golf broadcasting for nearly three decades. And I am so honored to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Mr. Wright. How are you? Um, you know, I'm almost speechless at the generosity uh, with which you greet me every time. You say 17 times, and you just excel yourself every time after time, Mr. Mascaro. I'm not worthy of it, but anyhow, <laughs> lovely to be with you. <laughs> Ah, uh, I can't thank you enough, Mr. Wright. And, and when you and I were communicating uh, yesterday before the show, you were telling me how much healthier and better you're feeling nowadays. Talk about why. It's, that's uh, one of the best things I've heard in a long time. Well, you know, uh, Chris, I'm nearly 88, which is uh, ripe old age. And um, I had a, a, a brush with the Grim Reaper in the closing months of last year. And I went to my uh, normal uh, checkup at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where I have a, a doctor, Glenn Alexander, who is not only a fabulous doctor, but he's a, a fabulous golfer. He was 11-time uh, champion of the Rochester Country Club, which is a great Arthur Tillinghast course. And he and his cohort, uh, Dr. Fry, who is the same age as me, uh, diagnosed me with uh, diastolic heart failure and put me on an aggressive diuretic program. In three weeks, I lost 30 pounds of fluid from my lungs and legs. And I was like a new man. And I shall forever be thankful. It's the third time that Mayo has uh, saved my life. You know, and I've gone from strength to strength. 
thankfully, I couldn't breathe. Uh, then uh, I couldn't breathe, Chris. Uh, couldn't breathe, wouldn't walk 20 yards without being out of breath. Now I'm on a new step, cross trainer, uh, recumbent cross trainer, and I'm doing uh, 3,100 steps in 20 minutes, which is not bad for an old guy like me. Well, that sure is refreshing news, and I'm so excited that. You're feeling better, and, and I'm sure, um, you know, uh, not only feeling better, looking better, and, uh, and you know, every day has got to be a heck of a lot better than what it was for the time being. So good for you for being up and around and healthy and, you know, doing the, the recumbent you, bike. That's, that's awesome. Thank um, you very much. And Mr. Wright, I mean, just with what's going on in, in the world right now, everything with the with – the, uh, coronavirus and staying home and all that sort of stuff. It, you know, and I'm a couple of weeks shy of my 55th birthday, but I've never seen anything like what we're seeing going on in the world right now. How about you? Have you seen anything like this before? Never, never. I'm, I'm old, but not quite old enough to have seen the uh, Spanish flu of 1918 and 1919 which killed literally millions of people. But this is the most horrible and miserable experience that I think anybody could wish, wish to avoid. Uh, it's just awful. And uh, I, 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 my heart goes out to all of those people who've been bereaved in, in these awful circumstances. And I have a a very um, probably politically incorrect hatred of the Chinese Communist Party. I better not go on anymore. Now <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's let's talk a, a, something a little happier. And and um, as I said at the top of the show during the intro, you know this is what would normally be Masters Week, and right now it's the first time in about twenty years I haven't been at Augusta National during this week and yesterday we learned that they're going to reschedule the tournament for early November. Wanted to get your thoughts. What do you think about the tournament being moved to the fall? Well, you know something, I, I, I don't know whether you know, but uh, they closed the course normally uh, on May the 1st and virtually plow it all up and do it, do it all again. And they opened for the members in November. That's normal. Uh, goings on there, and um, I think it'll be absolutely magnificent because the golf course is going to be totally pristine. I mean, there's going to be no play on it before the Masters. It's going to be terrific, but of course, as you pointed out, it's not going to be as warm as it normally is, and. Uh, that might be uh, against Tiger Woods. Uh, I hope it is because I would uh, give my eye teeth to see him defend the championship uh, successfully. But uh, anyhow, that's another matter, isn't it? Yes, but you know, to to your point, right? What do you think the impact is going to be? I mean, I would think the playing conditions are going to be different than what the guys are used to. 
it's going to be colder. I mean, you know, I, I live here in Atlanta, and right around uh, Halloween every year is when it starts to get cold. So it's going to be cold mm-hmm. for those guys playing in the morning. It's going to be colder than what they're used to. I got to imagine the ground and the greens are going to feel and play a little bit different. What are your thoughts? How do you think the course is going to be? There's another thing. The sun is not going to be in the same place at all. And in fact, um, you know, it's going to be a totally different sun for a start. It's, uh, it's not going to be as high in the sky. So maybe, for instance, when the sun is in your face, when you play 15, it may be a heck of a lot worse in November than it would be in April when it's much higher in the sky. And uh, it could be very difficult indeed. And I would think that the greens, you know, they're already legendary for how fast they are, but I would think the ground is going to be harder and I would think the greens are going to roll that much faster. I mean, they may see a completely different Augusta National than they've ever seen yes. before. Yes, I think you're absolutely correct. Um, I've never played it in November. Uh, I always uh, played it before the Masters with uh, with Summerall and Frank Kinnian and Horde Hardin. Uh, I played there a great deal, and it's going to be totally different, as you say. And it's going to be, uh, I would say, the ground will be firmer. But you might have serious cold weather or even serious cold rain. You know, it's going to be, as you said so rightly, it's going to be totally different golf. Mr. Wright, like I mentioned uh, in your intro, um, Tom Weisskopf, and going back to the 75 Masters and, and your statement, yes. that'll be evil music ringing in Nicholas's ears. I was curious, yes. because of your responsibility to the broadcast, were you able to watch Nicholas's putt on 16 go in, or did you just hear the roar afterwards? No, I could watch it with the naked eye um, because, you know, my tower 15 was uh, back right of the green as you approach it so I could spin round and be almost on top of the play at 15 uh, on the green so I saw every inch of that and I love Henry's, uh, Henry Longhurst remark about making a little evil music of his own uh, after he said it was the greatest putt he'd ever seen. And uh, definitely, I mean, I I saw every inch of it, Chris. And I think one of the things that we don't get the appreciation for looking at the the highlights is Nicholas's playing partner dumped three balls in the water on 16. So it, it sort of played out over a longer period of time than, like I say, the highlights uh, do justice to. What was that feeling yes. like as, as you know, Weisskopf and Miller are on 15, and then Nicholas is waiting, and he had a bad shot on 16, but obviously I hold the pipe. But what was that scene like? Well, I think it killed my friend Tom Weisskopf. Uh, I, I think it absolutely killed him. When that putt went in, and with all the con- 
frequent noise and everything like that. And here was a man, you know, who always uh, had to experience Nicholas just beating him. And they were from the same city, of course, of Columbus, Ohio. And I think that nothing more destroyed Tom Weisskopf than than that part. Uh, I, you know, Weisskopf was four times runner-up at Augusta National, and um, I, I think that it, I would say that more than any other trope that Nicholas played broke Tom Weisskopf's heart. Well, Weisskopf's an interesting guy to me, an interesting player. He he seemed to have all the talent in the world, beautiful golf swing. But was it a, yes. a confidence thing that, that kept him back? Was it intimidation, you know, anytime Nicholas was in contention? What do you think held him back from winning more majors? Well, I think Tom held himself back a lot of the time. Uh, he was a very wild man. And, uh, you know, but he's become a very different man now. But um, I really think the intimidation factor was the uh, the most instrumental uh, feature of his failure to be as great as he should have been. You know, only one major, the British Open, at the Royal Troon in 1973. Is ridiculous for a man who had one of the greatest swings I ever saw, if not the best. And, um, you know, it's, the game is such a mind game, Chris. And, um, you know, it just it, it got on top of him. And I remember when he actually beat Nicholas in the Canadian Open. Uh, at um, Royal Montreal, and he made a birdie to Nick Parr in the first hole of sudden death. And Weisskopf went totally bananas. I mean, he behaved like a total crazy man, and because he was so delighted to to have finally got one over on Nicholas and. Uh, I, I shall never get that as long as I live either. Mr. Wright, another one of the great players from that era was Lee Trevino, a guy who won six majors. He won the U.S. Open, the Open Championship, and the PGA Championship twice each. But his best finish in a Masters were a couple of 10th place finishes, including one in, in 85 when he was 45 years old. And, and it seemed like all of his best performances at Augusta National were from 78 to 89, and I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but they all came after Clifford Roberts passed away, and I know Trevino struggled with the club's policies and minorities, and and that sort of played into, I don't know if it was played into his head or his decision about whether he wanted to play at a, at the Masters or not, but I'm curious to get your thoughts. Why do you think it was so, so much later in his career that he finally started to play well then? Well, I think or well, you've hit it all on, the, you know, you've hit it all on the head. <laughs> he, he felt uncomfortable uh, because of the social and cul- 
involved in playing at Augusta National. And I don't think he ever felt comfortable. I mean, he would change in the change his shoes in the parking lot. He wouldn't go in uh, into the clubhouse uh, unless he had to. It, you know, it was uh, entirely a mental thing. And um, I remember vividly he took an 11 at the 15th hole when I was announcing. And he really hit several balls into the water as if he didn't give a totally damn, you know. I mean, he he was just totally out of out of his element at, at that uh, golf club too long, alas. And, Mr. Wright, I know you and Seve Balesteros had a great relationship. He had a couple of big wins at Augusta National 1980-83. Um, we're a couple of days short of what would have been his 63rd birthday, and as as a player, I mean, he could drive. He was driving the ball over 300 yards back in the days of persimmon woods and wound golf balls, and had an unbelievable short game on top of that. Talk about what made him such a wonder to watch. Well, um, he, I think Ben Crenshaw, who himself was, a, you know, a double winner and a wonderful double winner, he said. That Sevy imagined more uh, golf shots than the rest of us are capable of if put together. He he can manufacture more shots than the rest of the players in the game put together, and I think that was what was so tremendous about Sevy. I mean, he was not the most accurate of of a driver. He was not most accurate player. Goodness, he conjured miracles at every turn, and that was what made him so magical. Uh, he was a very volatile person, you know, and uh, I think that volatility was part of his makeup and made him such a dynamic uh, character. Uh, I, I found him eternally fascinating, Chris. And Mr. Wright, prior to Jack Nicklaus's win in 86, Gary Player was the oldest Masters champion. He was 42 at the time when he won in 1978. That was his third Masters uh, championship. But And he came back, you know, storming back seven strokes down at the beginning of the day. And I know that you've known Mr. Player since uh, he was practically a boy. Was it hard for you broadcasting that event and trying to stay objective and focused when he was making the incredible charge he made on the back nine? No, not at all. You know, um, I I never was one to play favorites, and uh, I regarded that as a very important facet of broadcasting that you you must not play favorites and. Uh, I think I managed to avoid it, but of course Gary was a very close friend and still is, I might add. And uh, I was very glad to see him do so well because he had so little to go with uh, in the first place, and he made himself by 
sheer hard work. And I love the fact that it was hard work that got him what he achieved, which was incredible for a little guy. I mean, let's face it, he's a little guy. And and uh, he, he was like Hogan, another little guy who, when they started, hit nothing but duck hooks. And they both made themselves by virtue of their hard work. And that's why I adore Hogan and just as much little Gary Player. Mr. Ray, one of the things that I've talked to Mr. Player about is the longevity that he and Mr. Nicholas had. When you look at Nicholas and Player, they were competitive in majors, particularly at the Masters, all the way into their late 50s. Nicholas finished sixth when he was 58 years old. But when you look at Mr. Palmer, Mr. Palmer missed the cut in 68 and was really never a factor in the Masters or a major after that. And all all of his major victories came between 1958 and 1964. So the major run was a pretty short one. Why Why do you think that Mr. Palmer's longevity wasn't as long as player Nicholas or maybe someone like Sam Sneed's were? You know, that's a, it's a mystery to me. It, but, of course, he was overwhelmed by Jack Nicholas. I mean, there's little doubt about that. But um, I'm, I'm amazed. You're... you're you know, I remember him winning the Spanish Open at La Manga Campo de Golf in 1973. And he made eagle at the 72nd hole, which was a par five. And he went totally crazy, like Nick, like Weisskopf had at the Canadian Open, you know, to have got them a monkey off his back. But uh, I I think, you know, Nicholas, God bless him, he had that ability to just kill off the opposition uh, by the fierceness of his uh, competitive nature. Mr. Wright, one more before I let you go, and I uh, just wanted to get an update from you on your course, Cliff Valley up there in Travelers Rest, South Carolina, and and um, looking ahead, I hope the opportunity comes for you to to have the Ben Wright Invitational up in Crystal Mountain in uh, in Michigan. Talk about your course, and then uh, hopefully your tournament. Well, um, they dropped me at Crystal Mountain, uh, so I don't go there any longer. But thankfully, <clears throat> excuse me. I have the Ben Wright International Challenge Cup for Meals on Wheels in Spartanburg, uh, South Carolina, at the Country Club of Spartanburg, which is a great Donald Ross course, restored to its original, and the Carolina Country Club. And um, it's for Cliff Valley going gangbusters because as you well know, one of the few things that people can do is, is play golf. Although it's one or a card, um, but the, you know, the golf course has been doing land office business since this terrible thing started. And, uh, 
Uh, you know, it's a pretty darn good thing for the game of golf that it hasn't been put out of bounds like practically everything else in life. Well, Mr. Wright, as I've said every time you've joined me on the show, it's an incredible privilege to get to spend time with you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. I hope I get the privilege of catching up with you again real soon. I I love being with you, Chris. You'll, as long as I can keep my marbles enough to put a few words together, I'll be with you. <laughs> I appreciate that very much. Mr. Wright, stay safe, stay healthy, and I look forward to catching up with you again real soon. Yes, and you stay safe too, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Wright. That's the legendary Mr. Ben Wright, and uh, it just doesn't get much better than that, folks. Getting to spend time with him and, and listen to his perspective and the stories and the events that he got to be a part of are always something that uh, that gives me a huge thrill, and it's uh, it's always exciting knowing that uh, when uh, whenever he's going to be on, that whole day is exciting for me. It's sort of an anticipation thing where I get to look for it all day long to getting to spend some more time with a legend like him. Like I said at, uh, at the beginning, he's a, he's a very dear man and he's very dear to me. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful that he is healthy and staying healthy and, and getting better than w where he was the last time we spoke. So, and I hope that that just, that trend continues. And I look, look forward to getting him back on the show as quickly as I possibly can. The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required. And they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save and save and win. Hey everybody, Buck Ballou here, and as a recent customer of Jim Ellis Automotive and a longtime friend of the Vice President, Stacey Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis Automotive Group takes pride in being a family-owned and operated business. I saw it firsthand. When Stacey's granddad, Jim Ellis, founded the company back in 71, his goal was to treat every customer like family by offering a car buying experience that was both easy and fully transparent. And it worked. 50 years later, Stacy's dad, Jimmy Ellis, grew the organization to become Georgia's largest family-owned and operated automotive group. And today, third-generation family members like Stacy, along with more than 1,700 dedicated team members, are working hard to uphold the values Jim Ellis Automotive was founded on. And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. A lifetime of hard work. Children laughing in the kitchen. Family photos on a restaurant wall. A legacy that lives on. It all comes from the power of a conversation. Like the one Tommy Hall had with First Horizon Bank about taking over his father's Charleston-based restaurant business. Now the table is set for a whole new generation. First Horizon Bank. Let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Tommy. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC.